Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says in verse 7 of chapter 1, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. As we come through this book of Ephesians, the first chapter contains one of the most glorious and rich and deep doxologies in Scripture. And I mentioned last week that a doxology is an utterance of praise. Verse 3 through 14, just to recap, because that's where we're at, we're in the middle of it. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek language. Uh, He just keeps going and going and going, and so it's all taken together as a whole. But as you look at this passage of Scripture, you can break down uh, this long sentence and see the work of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, each of them having roles in the redemptive purposes He has set forth. And so last week we looked at verse 3 down through verse number 6, and in that text we see the Father's election of His people, His blessing that He places upon His people in Christ, and how that He is to be praised for this. And as we contemplate that, how wonderful the sovereign work of the Father is to us. And then we come to verse 7 through 10, and we're going to look today at the focus of God the Son in our redemption And then later we will see verse 11 through 14 in the work of the Spirit, having perfect union with God the Father and God the Son. Now, as we have seen the work of the Father, it directly flows into this. And when we look at the message of God's sovereign election, we must understand this, that it should never cause one to be puffed up with pride. It does the opposite thing for us. The doctrine of election stimulates humility gratitude, and praise before God. It should do nothing other than that. Nothing other than that for us. And what we find in this text is reason as to why the Father choosing His people and blessing His people, why it is that it humbles us. Because if we're not careful, it is easy for us to let pride slip into our minds. Pride about a position, pride about uh, something we know, pride about anything... It's something that's just, I guess you could say, ingrained into our nature, right? We are proud beings. I find this in my own children. David and Jubilee, they manifest this day after day. They'll be arguing about one thing, who has the right to play with one toy, and the other thinks that they have the right to play with that toy. And I usually have to tell them, you know what? Neither of you have the right to play with this toy right now. I'm taking it away. Uh, Just to show them that the way they're acting was not right. You see, if we as God's people truly understand at a heart level and an intellectual level of what the Father has done for us, we will bow in utter humility before God and men. And so the reason here that there is zero ground for pride in us in the work of God the Father electing His people is rooted in the fact of redemption in the Son. You see, election humbles us when we understand our infinite need for redemption and the infinite cost of redemption. You see, the fact that God's people need redemption 
eliminates every ground for boasting. Every ground for boasting. Every saint of God, understand this, is a saint only on the ground of grace alone. And that is what we rejoice in. That is what we must recognize. Grace alone. And Paul wants these Ephesians to know clearly what the redemptive work of Christ has done for them and how this redemptive work truly is the pinnacle point in all of history. So follow along in your notes here this morning. I want to point out, number one, the meaning of redemption. We're talking about redemption by the Son. What is the meaning of redemption? And this is where the bulk of the message will will find ourselves in, and we'll come through the rest. But I want to point out two things about redemption we see in this text. Redemption is freedom through a purchase. Redemption is freedom through a purchase. Now, upon Paul describing this blessing of election by the Father through the Son, we find in verse 7 that Paul's continuing this sentence, and he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Now, who is the Him in view here? It is God the Son. As we noted, and we will note throughout this passage that in Him and through Christ and in Christ is woven throughout this entire doxology so that all that we see going on here, it's founded upon what Jesus has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Now, what does Paul say the saints have in Jesus? Notice that Paul says, we have redemption. Just think on those three words. Repeat them to yourself. We have redemption. We have redemption. We have redemption. You say, okay, we have redemption, but what exactly is redemption? Well, the word for redemption, there's actually several Greek terms that are used for this word. They all convey the concept of uh, of deliverance, being set free from a situation or a penalty that they could not deliver themselves from or pay for themselves. The term here for redemption refers to release from a captive condition. Release, redemption, deliverance. That's what your your definition will give you. And so this is how this term is generally used for us. Now, during the New Testament times, the Roman Empire had as many as six million slaves, and the buying and selling of them was a major business. If a person wanted to be free... A loved one or a friend who was a slave, wanted to free someone who was a slave, a loved one or a friend, he could buy that slave for himself and then grant him freedom, testifying to the deliverance by a written certificate. So this idea of redemption, it was known economically in the days of the Roman Empire when uh, Rome had ruled that region of the world and imposed whatever they wanted. But when we come to redemption, we see a greater understanding of it as applied to us by understanding its roots in the Old Testament. I want to point backwards just for a moment, and the example of this would be in Israel and their liberation from Egyptian bondage. We all remember what took place there, how that Israel was in bondage to Egypt and uh, they were under hard, uh, hard slavery in that day and time. They cried out to God, wanted deliverance. And here's where we see it illustrated. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 14, the Bible says, 
When in a time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? This is talking about the Passover they're talking about. You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Now, we remember that Israel was enslaved to Egypt and they were unable to deliver themselves. They were unable to free themselves from that hard bondage. How then could they ever experience deliverance? Only by God. Only by the Lord. Now, notice what it says. It says, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. They did not bring themselves out of Egypt. They did not liberate themselves out of their own power, but rather it was the Lord. And did the Lord set them free without any cost? No, there was something that took place. Notice this deliverance came from the Lord by a strong hand. In other words, God did something on their behalf. God did something on their behalf in their bondage. Now, we remember how the Lord uh, brought their deliverance in Egypt as He overthrew the Egyptian powers through the ten plagues. And the climax of that deliverance came in the last plague. You remember what the last plague was? God said, I'm going to send my death angel into Egypt. And every house that does not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the firstborn in that house is going to die. And so God tells His people this, and they prepare, and they kill the lamb, and they uh, put the blood on the doorposts, and they have the Passover. That's where the Passover would have been established. And so the death angel came through that night, and here's what the promise was. Exodus 12 and verse 13. The Bible says, The blood shall be a sign for you, and the house is where you are. And when I see the blood, I will do what? I will pass over you. That, that phrase sounds a little familiar. Isn't there a song that goes something like that? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. There's a beloved hymn that brings that out. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was the requirement for the death angel to pass over that household. And with that final plague and the blood covering the Israelites... God brought them out from the bondage of Egypt. They were set free. It is after that plague that Pharaoh said, get out of here. I want nothing more to do with you. Get out of here. And so God delivers His Israelites, His people in the Old Testament. Now, this is really the foundation, what you'll see with all through the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant with the law and the sacrifices and such. The redemption of the people of Israel from Egypt is a picture of the eternal redemption of God's people. His chosen that we read of in verse 3 and 4. And here's the reality. All mankind, without exception, has been born into the bondage of sin with Satan as a hard taskmaster. This is the reality for every single person, not Not just some people that think they're good and they're not really in sin. Every person born into this world is born in bondage to sin. In that bondage, they cannot escape it. You cannot escape this bondage. Now now listen to what Jesus says to the Jews in His day. In John 8, 34, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, the Jews of that day, the really religious ones, they thought Jesus was out of his mind. Uh, He tells them they're in bondage, and they say, we've never been in bondage. We're the children of Abraham. They thought that their heritage exempted them from such a thing. Little do they know, they don't know much of their own heritage because the children of Abraham were in bondage, right? Shows you their ignorance of that day. But who practices sin? Every single person. Every person as well practices sin in this world. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, friend. This is your condition. This is my condition. This is all of our condition outside of Christ. And what has this bondage of sin done to us? It has enslaved us to a sinful Nature in which we sin continually against our holy creator. Think about this. All we ever do outside of Christ is sin. Think of it. What did Isaiah say? Even the good deeds that we think are good in our eyes are as filthy rags. And all of us in our sin fade like the leaf. You understand that we in our nature, we know nothing but sin. That's how we live. Day after day, outside of Christ, sin is our bondage. But not only has it enslaved us to a sinful nature we can't escape, sin has also placed a penalty of death upon us in which we must pay. We find sin has brought death physically, spiritually, and eternally. You understand you physically will die because of sin. You spiritually are dead in trespasses and sins. And the Bible calls the lake of fire the last judgment, what we find there, the second death. That is an eternal death. Paul the Apostle said in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So what is the chief need of sinners then? It is redemption by someone else who can redeem them. It's not in us. It must come from another source. So this brings us... To see the depth of what Christ, our Redeemer, has done. Not just anyone could redeem such a sinful people. You see, God's holiness demands this specific requirement for redemption. God could not, in accordance with His character, wave some magic wand and just make all sin disappear. God in His holiness must bring judgment on sin. If He violates that, He is not a just and holy judge. So friend, this is where our condemnation comes into play. That we must give account for sin. And so understand that sinners must receive just punishment. And for redemption to truly be applied to the sinner... The holy demands of God must be met. And what are His demands for our redemption? I want to give you two quick demands that He plainly shows us in Scripture. One is a sinless substitute. A sinless substitute. Since sin is the problem, only sinlessness will appease God's wrath. 
And this eliminates any possibility of man saving himself. But there is another. There is another. His name is Jesus. God the Son. God in flesh. This man, Jesus, the one man and only man to have ever lived perfectly sinless. In perfect obedience to the law of God. You see, only only Christ meets the demands of God to redeem His people. But not only was it a sinless substitute, we find there is, secondly, a sacrificial substitute. Remember what the penalty is for sin, right? Death. You see, it wasn't going to satisfy God just that Jesus would live a perfect life. The penalty of sin must still be met, which is death. So what do we find happens? Jesus not only lives sinlessly on behalf of His people, He dies on behalf of His people. He is the one person who came into this world with the full intention of dying. You and I were born into this world, and what do we want? We want to live and live and live, but death grips us, right? But Jesus came into the world with the intention of dying. And in this death, He would die on behalf of His people. Now we see this, what Jesus, what, what Paul brings to our attention. Atonement for sin has always required the shedding of blood. Of blood. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, people in the world today, they like to scoff at the Old Testament or the Bible as a whole, and they say, oh, it's such a bloody religion. Friend, without the shedding of blood, there is no righteousness with God. There is no forgiveness. And so here's what we find. What does Paul say redemption came? How does Paul say redemption came to us in verse 7? In him, we have redemption through what? Through his blood. Through His blood. What does the blood of Christ, this blood reference of Christ, direct us to? Here's what it leads us to. It leads us to the death of Jesus on the cross. And friend, the death of Jesus on the cross, it is the pinnacle point of all history. The most important transaction that has ever come to pass happens when Jesus dies on the cross. Friend, the crucifixion of Christ, it is the darkest and most glorious moment in time and eternity. Because there on the cross, the God-man, the sinless Son of God, humbled Himself unto death at the hands of evil men by way of the most gruesome physical execution of that day. And in this death, friend, in this death, Christ bore the sins of His people on the cross, suffering the full weight of God's holy justice for them. This is a substitutionary sacrifice. The one who did not deserve to die has given himself to die. Now as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Can you, you just see what Scripture says? There on the cross hangs Jesus, drenched in blood, beaten and battered beyond recognition, far more than you and I could ever fathom in our minds. And there on the cross, He's crushed under the weight of the Father's wrath, all on behalf of you who believe. As I think of myself and the fact that He bore my sin there, it humbles me. Because I don't deserve that. Neither do you. That is what grace is all about. He has accomplished redemption for those the Father gave Him. Now listen to what Peter writes again in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 through verse 19. And notice with me, Peter writing of our redemption, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you know what Peter's making known here? That our redemption, it could not be purchased with even the chiefest material of this world. Silver, gold, you cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot free yourself. You cannot be saved outside of the precious blood atonement of Jesus Christ. To be ransomed here means to be set free by paying a price. To be set free. And so were it not... Were it not for the blood of Christ, nothing less than that would would, would have saved us. It is according to His precious blood. And Paul says that it is according to the riches of His grace. As Calvin comments on this, he says, By His death He has restored us favor with the Father, and therefore we ought always to direct our minds to the blood of Christ as the means by which we obtain divine grace. Friend, with this precious blood, those who believe are set free from the bondage of sin and death. You come back to where Jesus said, all who practices sin is a slave to sin. He also said in that passage concerning himself in John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You understand that this is eternal freedom. This is real freedom. This is the freedom from sin and death. And so Paul is reminding these saints that they have been set free from their former slavery in sin, which brings us only to praise God. But that is not all that redemption has done. Notice with me another element that is tied to our redemption. Notice with me, letter B, that redemption is forgiveness from a person. Redemption here is forgiveness from a person. Now, notice what he says redemption has done for us in Christ. In verse 7, he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So, we see that redemption and forgiveness of sin, they cannot be separated. They are joined together. While redemption in general speaks of our freedom from the bondage of sin... Forgiveness speaks of those sins that we have committed being wiped away, washed away, cleansed. 
Now, Paul says that we have forgiveness of our trespasses. What are our trespasses? Well, a trespass is a violation of a moral standard, offense, a wrongdoing. So if we have trespasses, who's, what, what have we violated? What is it that we have transgressed? We have transgressed the holy law of God that we could not keep. Every person has violated the holy law of God. You just take the Ten Commandments and come through that for a moment and you're going to find yourself guilty, 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 guilty. Which is why Scripture says there is none good, no, not one. None righteous. John the Apostle wrote in 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is violation of the law of God. And so trespasses, understand here, they are always against someone. And who is it that we have trespassed against? We have trespassed against God. It's against Him. He's our holy creator. The one who created us, gave us life, and we break His law every day. David, when he recognized his sin in Psalm 51, 3 through 4, he said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, your sins may affect other people, but chiefly they are against God. Every sin. When you lie... Sure, you may have trespassed against a person, but chiefly it is against God. When you steal, it is against God. All of it is against God. Now, seeing what our trespasses are, we understand that we're drenched in them. We're overcome with them. Our record of trespassing God's law is uncountable to us. Think of that. It's uncountable to us. But the redemption Paul speaks of here in Christ, what has it brought to us? It has brought to us forgiveness of those trespasses. What is forgiveness, friend? What is this that Paul means? Forgiveness is the act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. It is pardon. It is cancellation. It is a clearing of the guilt of wiping away of the record of violating God's law and the just punishment we deserve. Now, I will never forget getting my first speeding ticket. Anybody remember getting your first speeding ticket? If you've never got a speeding ticket, praise God, okay? I'm a lawbreaker. (laughs) Heavy foot. I try my best not to, but sometimes things get away from me. Speeding is a violation of what? The law of the land. That moment I was speeding, I was coming home from seminary, and it was about an hour away, and those blue lights flashed behind me, and my heart sank. First one, I knew I was guilty. I deserved it. There was no escaping it. I thought to myself, here's the first record of me breaking the law. It's going to count against me. I'll have to pay the fine. It will raise my insurance. Surely this is the end. (laughs) That's what I felt in that moment. I had a friend who was in the police department. I went and asked him how to properly pay the ticket because I had no clue what I was doing. This is the first time I'd ever got it. Well, that friend of mine, on behalf of me, contacted the circuit clerk 
and had that ticket wiped away. I didn't have to pay the fine, and the violation was not on my record. Did I deserve that? No, I deserved to pay the fine, didn't I? But he had it cleared for me so that it's not on my record. I got another one later. That one's there. <laughs> but <laughs> that one, the first one, didn't count. <laughs> didn't count. And I say this as an illustration to show you that this is what redemption in Christ has done on an infinite level for you, believer. This is what redemption is. Only Christ, only Christ, only in Him has our record of violating God's law been cleared and wiped away and it is only because of the blood He shed on behalf of you. David says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. You see, being forgiven means that your former guilt of sin is no longer counted against you by the holy judge of all creation. Now imagine for a moment if every sin you have ever committed was counted against you. Can you even remember how much sin you had yesterday? Even this morning. Imagine having every sin from all of your life on your record, and you come before God on judgment day, and you must receive the full weight of His wrath before Him for all of that sin. That's who we are outside of Christ. None can escape that judgment. Psalm 103 in verse 3 through 4, David again says, If you, Lord, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Nobody. Who could stand? And so he says, but with you, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Friend, Christ's blood atonement has wiped away our guilt and our immeasurable record of sin, cleansing us from its filth and declaring us righteous before our holy God. Paul the Apostle writes in Romans 4, 7 and 8, quoting David, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are what? Forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And if you read that chapter, you'll find that in Christ we have been declared righteous before God. I'll never fathom that, friend. I'll never be able to fathom that that we have been made righteous before God in His sight. John MacArthur comments and says, On the cross, God looked at Christ and saw you. Now He looks at you and sees Christ. What a transaction that is for, for God's people. You see, this redemption in Christ has brought freedom from sin, forgiveness to sin uh, for all those who believe. And those who believe are those who are chosen by the Father. As this text reveals to us, Understand this, that the death of Christ, it did not attempt to redeem people, it actually did redeem people. As it was said of Jesus in Matthew 1.21, at His announcement of His birth, She'll bear a son and you'll call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Charles Spurgeon summarizes it this way, Salvation, in short, is deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the guilt of it from the punishment of it, from the power of it. This is the meaning of redemption. 
freedom from the bondage of sin, forgiveness from our acts of sin. But notice with me, number two, we see the mystery of redemption in our text. The mystery of redemption. And I want you to see a quick, couple quick things about this. Redemption's plan was veiled before Christ came. It was veiled. It was not fully known. Now, as we've noted before, that Paul makes reference to this mystery being revealed. There in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will. Uh, And so what does this show us? It shows us that the mystery of redemption was formerly veiled, not fully known, at a certain point in time. Now, Paul uses this word mystery six times in Ephesians, and it's used 21 times in the New Testament elsewhere. Largely by Paul. But what is this mystery? The word for mystery here refers to the unmanifested or private counsel of God. His secret. The secret thoughts or plans and dispensations of God. Now anything that's a mystery is unknown to someone, right? You're trying to figure it out. If somebody says, oh, that's just a mystery. It means they don't understand. They don't know. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was Scooby-Doo. Anybody else like Scooby-Doo? That clan with Scooby, they rode around in a van. And what was that van called? The Mystery Machine, right? And uh, so at the beginning of every episode, there would be some kind of mystery that presents the show. And it sets up the show. And then by the end of the show, what do you have? They've figured it out. They see clearly what all took place. See, in the beginning and through the Old Covenant, redemption was fully promised to man, but not fully perceived by man. And Paul makes reference to this several times in his letters. You read in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Some translate that as the world, before the world. So this is the mystery of God's unfolding and what he's worked through redemption. Now how the gospel of redemption would unfold was mysterious even to the Jews who had the inspired writing of the prophets. You remember how the Jews praised Jesus as king as he entered in Jerusalem? And just a few days later, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What happened there? They expected their Messiah to come politically liberate them from Rome. When Jesus doesn't do that, they turn on him, especially by the influence of the Pharisees. They did not understand that the Messiah must die to redeem his people. Even the disciples didn't get this after Jesus told them plainly what was going to happen. Look with me at Luke chapter number 18 for a moment, verse 31 through verse 34. I'm trying to come through this. Luke chapter 18 and verse 31 through verse 34 for a moment. The Bible says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully entreated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, stop there and think for a moment. Pretty plain, right? He just tells them, plain and simple, this is what's going to happen. But notice the next verse. But they understood none of these things. Why? This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They didn't grasp it. If you recall later in Luke's gospel, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus who encountered Jesus, Jesus, one of the greatest sermons I would have loved to hear, heard, expounds to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself on that journey. 
And they still don't get that Jesus, the risen Christ, is right next to them. And that it all applies to him. And in Luke 24, 31, he says, there, after, after he had uh, made known to them these things, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. Simply put, unless God gives man revelation, his truth is indeed mysterious. Consider what we would know without the scriptures. That's why we have the revelation he's given us. Consider what we would know without the work of the Holy Spirit and His drawing us and convicting us. Why doesn't every man eagerly run to the gospel? Think about what we offer and call the world to. Eternal life! Why doesn't man run to the gospel? Well, firstly, he doesn't like it because God's holy. That's the first thing. His nature is sinful. But secondly, he doesn't comprehend the glory of it. What it actually is. What does man think of me preaching the gospel here this morning? 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But do us our being saved is the power of God. What is, why does fallen man think in such a way about the gospel? 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when it comes to the work of redemption and what it does, it was a mystery. It was a mystery. But not anymore. Not anymore. And this is where we see this next aspect. Redemption's plan is known in Christ. It was veiled before Christ, but now it is known. And see, we see a a further utterance of the glory of what redemption has done for us. Notice in verse 8 that Paul says that redemption has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now this word lavished refers to causing something to exist in a Abundance, abound. It's, a, it's an overflowing, overwhelming, pouring out. So this redemption we have experienced has been poured out abundantly on us with two things here, with wisdom and insight. You see, experiencing redemption didn't just give us freedom and forgiveness of sin. It also includes wisdom and insight. See, the wisdom... Here is the capacity to understand and function accordingly, while insight refers to the ability to understand intelligence, insight. So combined with these two words, you see an intellectual and practical understanding of something. What is it that we who are redeemed in Christ have been given wisdom and insight into? Verse 9. Making known to us. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. Christian, you have been given understanding of God's eternal plan in Christ. And now on the opposite side of the cross with a completed canon of Scripture, we have a wealth of understanding of what God has done and what He's continuing to do. Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see that? The rulers of this age did not understand what was happening. Read that whole chapter and you'll get a better understanding of all that Paul's talking about there. But this is why you and I as Christians were viewed so strangely by the world. Knowing Christ gives us spiritual perception and a biblical, biblical worldview that fallen humanity doesn't grasp. Because true wisdom 
True knowledge is found in the one who is all wise and all knowing, Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 2 and verse 2 and 3, that he wishes and wants them and the other churches to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, the gospel of Christ, the completed work of redemption, was a mystery in the Old Testament. It still remains a mystery for a depraved man, but it is made known to God's people in him. How marvelous that truth is. Let me point out to you number three, and I'll try to come through this quickly. Notice number three, the marvel of redemption. The marvel of redemption, because we see the mystery and how it, how it brings, brings all this to, 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 to a head with us, that we get wisdom and insight. But notice the marvel of redemption and how vast it reaches. Notice with me, firstly, that redemption reaches the whole of God's creation. It reaches the whole of God's creation. Now, Paul, continuing this run-on sentence which justifies my run-on sermon, by the way, expounds upon the mystery of redemption that's revealed here. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, there's reference here, and we'll be throughout this book, to the union of God's chosen people being in one body, Jews and Gentiles. It means all people, regardless of ethnicity or boundary, that are in Christ being one in Him. He'll expound on that in chapter 3. But it reaches further than that. See, the redemption that comes from God's Son not only secures the salvation of His people, but also has a further effect on freeing the entire cosmos. God's creation from the bondage of sin. You understand that sin not only enslaved mankind, it also brought a curse on the earth. It brought a curse on creation. God's handiwork. Has God redeemed His people only to let His precious creation forever be enslaved to sin as well? Absolutely not. It's His. See, even creation knows there is a day of regeneration for the created order coming. Read Romans 8 and verse 19 through 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see the created order in its anticipation? And this is what redemption has done. It reaches all things. Let me briefly read to you a reference here in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I can't skip over this. But Colossians 1 in verse 15 through 20, and notice how Paul continues this same truth. He says of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might have preeminence. 
For in him in all the fullness for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see the totality here of what redemption has done? All things of creation are brought into subjection of Him. Now, this cosmic redemption of the created order does not mean that those who are condemned, the wicked sinners and evil angels, will be redeemed. That's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul is saying here is that by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, God's universe, which was cursed and chaotic in sin, is being restored into harmony and unity under the headship of Christ. As Ian Hamilton rightly said, Adam's sin was cosmic tragedy. It wasn't just tragedy on mankind. It brought tragedy on the entire created order. And so, but Christ here, He has redeemed not only His people to Himself, but all of His creation back to Himself. It's all His by His own blood purchase. The work of Christ on the cross is the central axis for the history of creation, whether in heaven or in earth. The work of the cross, understand this, has guaranteed the success of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom of God, and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. You understand that heaven, heaven is not just some floaty place in the sky. Our eternal abode will be on a regenerated earth. Heaven's coming here. Earth's not going up there. It's invading this world. As Jesus rightly told His disciples to pray in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And friend, as we just think on all of this, the redemption of the Son of God, it is immeasurable to us. Beyond what we can contemplate and comprehend, it is marvelous. Notice with me, lastly, letter B, we see redemption's reason is in God's perfect causes. And this is where I just summarize what we find here. Why did all of this come about? Why do we have such deep and wide truth of redemption? Verse 7, what did Paul say according to the riches of All through this text, just as you'll see in Him, you'll also see according to. According to the riches of His grace. Verse 9, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. All of redemption is through God's Son and through God's sovereignty. And the imperative here for the Ephesians and us is this. That we see redemption in all its blessings coming through God the Son. Because Jesus alone has died for His people. Jesus alone has shed His blood for their sins. Jesus alone has risen from the dead. Jesus alone has ascended to His throne. Jesus alone reigns forevermore. What a Savior He is. Today, if you're a Christian, I call you to consider the riches of God's grace towards you. Consider the riches of God's grace and redemption that we find here. Rejoice and praise Him. If you're not a Christian, consider today that you have no hope outside of Christ. And if you yourself see your own condemnation and sin, look to Jesus, for He alone is salvation. Repent and believe on Christ, and you will be saved. 
Jesus said, all that the Father gives me shall come, and all who come will not be cast out. If you see your need of him, look to him today. Let's stand to our feet as we have a closing song. Ask Brother Ron to come. Father, we bow before you this morning. So thankful, Father, for all that is included in this text. We know that there's so much here. We could spend so much more time in this passage. Lord, the redemption that you've provided in Christ truly exceeds what we can fathom. May we never get tired of hearing the good news. May we never get tired of telling the old story of what Christ has done for sinners. That it is all by your grace and that he is the head over all creation. and He will bring his people to himself. Father, cause your people to rejoice today. And if there be lost sinners among us, Father, I pray that you would draw them and bring them to saving faith, Lord, as only you can. We pray these things in Jesus' name.